Lord, we're thankful for this time. I pray that you would um, guide us through the word according to your will and your purpose and your plan. I know that any chapter we um, jump into and engage, there's really a, seems like there's a thousand different ways to treat it, to, to respond to it, to engage it, to teach it, to ask questions of it. Um, we have finite minds and we are hearing directly from a God who is infinite in wisdom and infinite in understanding, infinite in insight, infinite in knowledge. And so I trust that we can take from this what you want us to take from it. Uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity that we have to look at the Word and to uh, really understand what our story is, knowing that our story is the story of a people and it goes way back. Um, that there's no afterthoughts. Um, it's all a cohesive beautiful reality that exists because our God is great. Um, I pray that you would overwhelm us with your glory and allow us to increase in understanding that we might increase in worship. Our created purpose is to put your glory on display, uh, to glorify you by enjoying you forever. And so I pray that this wouldn't just be a study uh, for head knowledge, but that we would be enjoying you as we see you communicating deep, timeless truths to your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to cover, hopefully, a lot of real estate tonight. We're going to, the aim is to get through, I don't even know, I probably shouldn't even tell y'all, because it seems like every week we don't get through what the aim is to get through. So we're going to start next is 24, and we'll get through what we get through. Um, uh, the question I want to start with tonight is, how can we know that we're not resting rightly? When there is no what? There's no peace? What else? What? Refreshment, yeah. Or as the Hebrews would say, anybody? Anybody? We all said it together last week. It's something that ends with an S-H. You are correct. Nefash. Remember that? Everyone say it together. Nefash. That's refreshment. So if there's rest and there's no refreshment, we're likely uh, not resting rightly. And we see that our rest and our trust has to be in the Lord. And uh, it needs not be with just trying to distract ourselves for a season of time. Uh, why is it not okay to boil your goat in its mother's milk? You've probably heard this question a thousand times today. Yeah, it was a pagan ritual. Do you all remember what it was for? Yeah, it was a fertility rite. So if they wanted to have a baby, they would boil a goat in its mother's milk. And so it was a pagan fertility rite, and God calls us to be different and don't take part in godless things. And so when he said that, it may have been possible that they didn't know what he was talking about until they came upon someone boiling a goat in its mother's milk. And they said, what are you doing? And they said, we're trying to have a baby. And then the Israelite would say, well, we're trying to have a baby. Maybe we should give that a shot. And that's where God says, no, no, no. You are to be different. You're to be set apart. Why is it so important to pay careful attention and obey? That was a theme last week. Why is that important?
This was supposed to be the really broad and easy question. Why is it important to pay careful attention and obey? Let me phrase it this way. Should we pay careful attention? Should we obey? And and why would that be? Yes, it will fall away. If if we just become lackadaisical and uh, not particular in, in considering what the Lord has said, the Lord is speaking to his people. And if we hear that and we just kind of say, oh, that's cool, but this is cool too, and that's cool too, and, and this is cool too, and oh, did you see what they're doing over here? And, and you can fall away. You can, you can lose the attention. So he says pay careful attention, and he says to obey. Um, obedience is not something he suggests. It's something he commands, and it's not something that he wants us to dabble in. He wants us to be completely obedient to his words. We're going to see that even in greater proportion tonight. Maybe that's not the right way to say it. Tonight, it will be reiterated that, that God is very serious about the particulars of obedience. Um, I don't know if it's in greater portion than it was in Exodus 23. So what are some ways that God goes before us? Oh, uh, let go and let God. Do we like that? No. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, pay close attention to your life and be particularly obedient and, and let God. Don't let go of obedience and let God. Don't just say, I'm going to sit here and hope for the best and let God. Um, it, it's, it's, it's hold on tight and let God at, at, at worst. Um, what are some ways that God goes before us in our endeavors? God goes before us in our endeavors. First of all, what should our endeavors be? Who directs that? God, Holy Spirit, yeah, all those are great answers. And so he tells us what to do, where to go, how to be about it, and what does he? What are some ways that he goes before us? Yes, hornets. He he in in Exodus twenty three he sends hornets to drive out people. Just for a moment, picture it in your head. Don't be like that's neat, cool, whatever. Picture it in your head. Imagine an entire people needing to be driven out. Israel's on their way here at some point, and hornets drive them out. I mean, that's going to look crazy. Have you ever seen Tommy Boy? Surely everyone's seen Tommy Boy. (laughs) Bees, save yourself. Run for your life. Um, That's probably what it was like, but with hornets, so it was even worse. So we're going to look at chapter 24 uh, at least first. So 24 verses 1 through 3. Then he said to Moses, so he, he, the, the conquest of Canaan has just been promised, and he went into details about how he's going to do that, and he's sending them toward the promised land, and he is doing things for them on their behalf, driving people out. He's telling them to pay careful attention. Don't make covenants with them and their gods. Don't take part in their rituals. You are to be different. You are to be set apart. You are my people, and I am sending you to where you're supposed to go in the way that you're supposed to go. And here we jump in, and God says to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up 
with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So the picture is, you got Israel. If this is the mountain over here, you got Israel who's further away and just as a population. Then you have the 70 elders and who are a little closer, Nadab and Abihu a little closer, Joshua a little closer, but Moses is the only one worshiping the God, the only one in God's presence. And so you see sort of these um, steps towards, towards God's holiness. So Moses is relaying what God has communicated and the people respond. And what is distinct about the people's response? One voice. And, and what did he communicate? There's a key word in there. Rules? Which ones? All. This, this is important for us. We, have to, we can be really good at reading the parts that we like and that fit our lives as our lives are now. And he could have said, well, they probably don't need to know that part right now. Uh, I'm assuming they already know this. Um, this will be really beneficial for me as a leader. This will be really beneficial when it comes time to have the different festivals. He could have, you know, kind of picked and chosen what he felt the people needed to hear. But what the people need to hear is all of what God has to say. And so we can't pick and choose. We need to embrace all that God has to say. And when we engage something that we don't have full understanding in, just upon reading, we need to engage it even more deeply because we know that God's not wrong ever. That's a, if, as you're studying your Bible, that's a premise you need to start with. God's not crazy. God's not wrong. God's not, um, uh, he doesn't uh, contradict himself. Um, it all makes sense. So if I read something, I'm like, that doesn't make sense. It means it doesn't make sense to me, but it makes sense to God, and we have to engage the text. So he, he tells the rules that God has shared, and not just some of them, all of them. And they have one voice. Yes, I don't talk good. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's a sweet realization to see how he's been brought along as God is, you know, grooming him and showing him, sanctifying him really into the leader he's supposed to be. Turn over to Romans 15.4. Keep your finger in Exodus. We're not going to be in Romans for a long time. But in Romans 15 verse 4, at least I think that's it. It's going to be close. Hmm. Sure, we'll start in verse 4. It says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So what we're reading now was written not just for Israel's instruction, but it was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's why choral singing is so extremely important. That's why we don't sing a whole lot of crazy, weird, hipster, indie, rock, obscure songs that no one can sing along with. Because it's so appropriate that we, we honor God with one voice. They responded by God saying, this is what I want you to do. They responded with one voice. 
They were in unison saying, we will do everything that you have said. And so when we come in and we sing the same notes together on, in corporate worship, we are with one voice glorifying God as a gift he's given to us in Christ. He's the God of endurance and encouragement that has granted us such an opportunity. And we should treasure it rightly, and there's a reminder here. So for a moment, I want you to consider what all they're agreeing to. And it really is, it needs to be just a moment. Like, think through that. They, they're agreeing to a lot of things. It, you, turn back to Exodus. They're agreeing to a lot of things that God has said. There are no questions. There are no, what about this? What about that? Or I don't think I'm going to be very good at that. They agreed to all of it. And what they're agreeing to is, is pretty, pretty huge. And we need to see that as we move forward. Now look at verses four through eight. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. We are thankful for that today. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. It's not uh, real mysterious. The 12 pillars are in accordance with the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And then check this out. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. That's good. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Do you know how crazy that probably looked? He, 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 okay, I don't know. When we picture this, it's like we picture a little dab of blood. I'm going to put it right here. No, he's taking it out, out of basins and probably using a leaf of some sort and flinging it all over the altar first. And then the people have their response and then he takes it. Could you imagine if I got up here and taught? Y'all agree? We agree we'll do it. Okay, cool. Just covering y'all in blood, running down your face all over your clothes. Consider first that the blood was thrown against the altar. This indicates that the blood of the sacrifice is first for God. So we need to see that the blood of the sacrifice is first for God. And it's first for God as a just settlement for his wrath. Um, God's wrath is something a lot of people don't like to talk about. And God's wrath is something that people write books um, void of. Uh, on purpose, because they think, you know, how could God ever have wrath? We know from Romans 1 that the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness, because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. And God's people are supposed to be truth speakers and not truth suppressors. And so the blood that was put on, um, flung on the altar first was for God. This is, this is a theme in the scriptures that we should embrace fully, that God has appointed that it is by substitutionary death or substitutionary atonement symbolized by shed blood, that those endangered by his wrath are accepted into his presence and fellowship. So this is continuing a theme that started way back at the Passover. What did they have to cover the doorpost in at the Passover? The blood of which lamb? Perfect spotless Passover. Yes. All those are good. Yeah. The perfect spotless Passover lamb, the blood of that lamb was to be on the doorposts. So you couldn't take the three-legged, one-eyed lamb and say that'll do. You needed the pure, good lamb, and it wouldn't be okay just to put it on the top of the door. You had to put it on the top and the sides. Um, and so this, this theme of substitutionary atonement, 
uh, symbolized by the shed blood, that those endangered by his wrath are accepted into his presence and fellowship. Without the blood and without the substitutionary atonement, we have no fellowship with God. These are, these are core beliefs that are important to God's people. Uh, there is no way for us to achieve it on our own. And when we dismiss claims that God could be wrathful towards anyone, we totally diminish the importance of the blood and we diminish the importance of the sacrifice and the, and, and the substitutionary atonement. And so um, those are things that we should uh, embrace and, and think deeply on. Um, I've been reading uh, a book that reminds us that God says, um, think on these things and I'll give you understanding. So if it's worth listening to, it's worth thinking about. And in thinking about it, God gives us understanding. Uh, Psalm 39 says, and as I mused, uh, the, the fire burned. So it's this picture of I'm thinking and musing on these things and there's this fire that burns that, that, that um, quickens us to want to glorify God, understand him, honor him, please him, and, uh, and understand him uh, in all ways. The commentator, uh, Motyer, goes on to say, No sooner had they made this enormous commitment than the shed blood was sprinkled over them like a huge covering of mercy. They were committed to obedience. That was their prime concern. But God knows that the best intentions fall constantly short and provided the blood of sacrifice to be at the ready to cater for each and every lapse from his revealed way. So what happened here is they said, yes, we will obey. We will obey as one, one voice, one worshiping people. We will do everything you say. He says, good, and starts slinging blood all over. It'd be like you saying, I don't know, this is probably a stupid example, but you're trying to cook something for the first time, and I can do it. And you, the parent says, are you sure you can do it? Yes, I can do it. Are you sure you know the temperatures? And don't leave it in too long. We don't want to burn the house down. I can do it. I'll do it. I'll do everything you say. And you say, okay. And you walk up with a fire extinguisher and just kind of stand there and wait. It's like, but I said I could do it. I know. I know. I'm just going to be here with the fire extinguisher. It's not a perfect analogy, but what the picture is is that they were wholehearted in their, their expression of we will do everything you say. And he said, good, you need to be covered by the blood of the lamb. Sometimes we act and think as though God's expectation is that we should get to a point where we no longer need the shed blood of Christ. For the believer, you never get to the point in your life where you no longer need the shed blood of Christ. It, it does not honor God in the least for you to go to him and say, I'm doing really good, God. Um, I'm putting sin to death. Uh, I, the things that used to really weigh me down, I've, I've gotten rid of them. Um, I'm, I'm moving faithfully in, in all realms of life, work, uh, marriage, parenting, friendships. Um, and I, I think I need the blood less today than I needed, you know, a year ago. That, that's not how God's people work. That, that's not honoring to God. And sometimes we act like that. Um, we can act as though that's God's goal. And there's no point ever where we will no longer need the shed blood of Jesus these verses would offer that before you ever endeavor to obey at all in any way, you should first see yourself covered in the blood of sacrifice. If you don't see yourself covered in the blood of Christ, don't take one step forward in obedience because it's a prideful step. Because just in that expression of I don't need the blood, you are expressing pride, great, abundant, horrible, ugly pride. Um, you should see yourself first covered in the blood of sacrifice. Without such covering, there's no hope of obedience. So you can't be obedient and earn the blood. You can't be obedient and then get blood 
it, it is, it's, you are covered in the blood of the sacrifice so that there is obedience. It's God's work in and through you uh, by Christ. So there's two pitfalls. If we think that, we'll only ask God for things. Um, if, if we get to a point where, um, well, there's just two pitfalls in that thinking. One is that you only ask God for stuff. You, you go to him and say, I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And there's no praise. There's no adoration. There's no meditating. There's no silence. There's no thanks. There's no confession. There's no intercession for other people. Your prayer life is only one where you are going to God and saying, give, 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 give. The other pitfall is never asking God for anything, which is unhealthy self-sufficiency, um, where we just say, I, I don't, I don't want to go and ask him for anything because I'm afraid he'll be upset with me for needing something. Does that make sense? We should never get to a point where we're, upset, where we're afraid to ask God for something because we're concerned about his being upset that we need something. He is a holy father full of compassion that goes beyond our, our comprehension. And that should inform our parenting as well. How, how would that inform your parenting? Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hope for sanctification in my kids where they're growing in Christ's likeness, but anytime they need something, I don't want them to think that I'm going, oh, you're going to ask for something else. That, that's, if we know how God responds to us, it'll, it helps us in our parenting as well. The blood of the covenant, that phrase, the blood of the covenant, uh, is um, used in verse 8 there. And I want you to turn over to Matthew 26, because Jesus uses the same language on purpose. Blood of the covenant. Matthew 26, verse 26 says, uh, they've, they're celebrating Passover. Judas has just betrayed Jesus. They're, they're at the Passover meal gathered together. It says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's one of my favorite verses. I love every time we revisit the table, it informs why we're there and when Jesus is going to take it next. The next time Jesus takes it, will be with his children in heaven. And there's a sweet encouragement there. Um, but there's an ESV note that says, Christ here is likening the Christian communion meal to the Old Testament peace offering. So we're looking at the peace offering in Exodus. And by using the phrase blood of the covenant in reference to himself, he is saying that the Christian communion is, uh, is, is li being likened, likened to the Old Testament peace offering. So my question is, who's making peace for who and for who? Is that clear? Who's making peace for who? For who? Who's making peace with who for who? Yes, that's much clearer. Who's making peace with who for who or whom? We'll use them interchangeably here. Oh, wait, uh, there's a couple English teachers. Is it who or whom? With whom? With whom is who making peace with whom? Good. I see you're with, and I'll raise you a whom. So, so what's going on here? Yeah. 
Wow, nailed that. Jesus is making peace with the Father for us. That, that's what's happening here. So when, when we take that communion, we're, we're reminded Christ made peace with the Father for us. It was a work of the Father. It was a work of the Son. And it, it hearkens us back to Exodus 24 where you see people getting covered in blood. I, I might get crazy this week on the Lord's Supper and just start slinging juice everywhere to remind us that this is a peace that's being made uh, on our behalf by the Son who is the Passover lamb and shed his blood as the blood of the covenant. Um, so don't miss that connection. Turn back to Exodus 24 verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. Consider that for a moment. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, really, don't, don't read that lightly. What just happened there is amazing. That whole uh, under his feet, pavement, sapphire stone, like the very heavens were clean. We don't even, you, you ain't got to wrap your head around that. You can try. You're supposed to try, but you're not going to. What's going We know it's not complete, but it is partial. Yeah, it's, it, we know it's not complete, and most of the commentators believe they saw his feet through the sapphire. Yeah, and so uh, it's similar to that in that it's not a complete um, sight of God, but, but it is a sight of God nonetheless. Um, so it's a pretty monumental occasion here, but this is exactly what the substitutionary death of Christ accomplishes. This is what the substitutionary death of Christ accomplishes. This is what being covered in the blood accomplishes. We can enter into the presence of the one true holy God and dine. Do you see what this says? He did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. I have a handful of enjoyable meals that I remember from my life. Most of them have to do with steakhouses that were way too expensive. Um, but this is one of those moments that, that is absolutely monumental. They're dining in the presence of God because that's what the substitutionary sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement, the blood of the lamb achieves for us. Um, look at verses 12 through eight, 18. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait here that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant, Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. This is not a fairy tale. This really happened. So like a good leader... Moses puts things in order before he leaves. That's a good, good leader. And like a wise leader, he doesn't leave alone. Who does he take with him? Joshua. This is the first time we see Joshua's name here. 
So he, he gets his things in order, and he says, Aaron and her are going to be the ones who settle disputes for uh, these few million people. Um, good luck with that. Uh, and, uh, and he doesn't go alone, but he takes Joshua with him, which is very, very wise. Uh, and now our stage is set for Moses to spend 40 days and nights atop the mountain receiving truth from the Lord. Exodus 20 through 23 is very slow moving. As we get to Exodus 24, it moves a little faster. And so we have this stage that's set. It's very dramatic. Um, it's on purpose. And God is very particular. Chapter 25 is the beginning of this 40-day and 40-night communication from God to his people via Moses. Pay careful attention. What we are about to read is God showing how he will dwell with his people. God's saying this isn't just going to be a Moses-only thing. I'm going to dwell with my people. And so what we're about to read is how God wants that to happen. There's a lot of details a lot of numbers and colors and materials, and it's all extremely important. So we're going to pay careful attention as we have already been told to. Look at 25, 1 through 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Imagine this being said to you, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps. What lamps? They don't know yet. Just oil for the lamps. Spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. The first thing that God mentions here is a contribution from the people. What was the detail that God included? about that contribution. Willing. And that's a reflection of what? The heart. So he's saying, I don't want you to just go collect stuff, Moses. This is a group effort. Put it before the people. This is why every time there's a need in this body, we put it before the people. Because that's, that's how God has shown it, that he wants it done. You know how this building was built? With cash, no financing? We put the needs before the body as God reveals them to us, and the body responds, well done. It's great. That, that's good movement. It's wise movement. And it has to come from the heart. God doesn't just want you going through the motions. He never wants you just going through the motions. So my question is, is it unrealistic for God to expect these things from Israel? Gold and silver and bronze and onyx and scarlet. And, is, it, is it unrealistic? Well, how do all these desert-dwelling, free, recently freed slaves have that? Yeah, they verbally plundered Egypt. Verbally plundered. I love this. Every time we talk about it, I just absolutely love it. On their way out of Egypt, they said, may we plunder you? And they said, sure. And they gave them everything. So what they didn't know, though, is these are the riches that are going to build the tabernacle. It's so cool. It's so cool how, how God provides. Now, I don't want to get too into it. Uh, 
No, uh, he has provided these things to them from Egypt. So it is folly to think that God expects anything from us that he has not first supplied. If you hear say, God saying, I expect something from you, you can't say, well, how can you expect that? He's, he's likely supplied it already. Um, I remember growing up and we had building, I was in a building campaign from like 1982 to 2003, I think. I thought that's what church was, was a building campaign. And, uh, and we, were all, we were always suffering together. Um, there was always a theme, let's suffer together. We'll suffer through this. If you build it, they will come. Um, it's not biblical. It's not in the Bible. Don't, that's from a good movie, but it's not from a Bible. Um, and so we were always in a building campaign and suffering together. And, and there was always this hope that where's that businessman in the community who is feeling very benevolent and wants to write, oh, where's that, where is that widow who is loaded and wants to love on the church? Um, where is that one doozy of a check writer that will make this happen for us? And the reality is, if God is asking or calling or leading you to some large endeavor, it's likely he will supply it through his people. Um, and it doesn't have to be just, let's hope for one, one biggie and put our, put our trust in that influential person. So, um, Whatever God was calling our church to growing up, um, it was probably going to be limited to what God had provided in the body. So um, what's the point of the sanctuary in verse 8? Yeah. It's the means by which God's going to dwell in their midst. Midst is a very good Christian word. If you want to sound holy, you use the word midst. In verse 9, what is God calling for? Exactness according to what? Yeah, according to the pattern. Exactness according to the pattern. There's another, if y'all don't have an ESV study Bible, they're really great. This week I was just like, oh, go ESV study Bible. That's good. Uh, the ESV note says, the fear of the Lord is shown through fidelity to what he commands. What does that mean? The fear of the Lord is shown through fidelity to what he commands. In verse 9, he says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. The fear of the Lord is shown through fidelity to what he commands. What does that mean? Pay close attention. What he commands is what we're going to do. We're not going to take what he says and make a, a new, better variation of it because you can't do that. And so it's, it's, it's clarity and particularness to what he uh, commands And the particulars of the sanctuary are meant to teach the people what it means to have a holy God dwell among them. It's not like, hey, it's whatever. Just, you know, put some sheets over those trees. I'll, I'll hang. No, he wants them to know, I am a holy God. I am dwelling among you. Don't buy the $30 tent at Walmart. We're going all out. We're covering it in gold. It's going to be serious. So why all of the gold? Wait, let me say this first. We can safely say that it would be highly inappropriate, hearing what God has just said, it'd be highly inappropriate to move forward in, in this text in a manner that disregards any details. So climb in and port your senses. What does this look like? If I was an Israelite, what would I be experiencing? So um, 25, 10 through 16 says, they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits. How much is a cubit? Anyone know? 
Yeah. Yes. Yes. But did they measure him before or after he fell? Okay. Um, yes, about 18 inches. So they should make an ark of a kid. So I just want you all to know that so you're not thinking an ark like <laughs> Noah, of, but gold. It's, it's different. Uh, they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half uh, shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it, so it's like 18 by 18 by 18. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it. Anyone know what gold goes for for an ounce right now? Anybody? 1690? All right. So 18 by 18 by 18 completely covered. Anybody know how much gold that is? I'm just kidding. I don't care. That's a lot. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give to you. Why all of the gold? That's a great answer, because he said so. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, this gold's significant because of how it was given, not because of how it is possessed. And so what we do with it will signify how how it was given to us as Israelites. So consider for a moment that our God is is meticulous. Meticulous. Very detailed. It may be a new thought for some of us. God is meticulous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not his Christmas gift. Yeah. It's not him like a kid on Christmas where it's like, Daddy, I want to buy you a gift. And you're like, 10 or 100? I'll give you 100. Go ahead and give me something nice, you know. This is, yeah, this is, this is very much for them. Um, the creator of the universe doesn't need any gold to pad his portfolio and wallet. So that's, very, that's a great point. We need to make that very clear. In our culture, we tend towards kind of contextualizing God, but he's timeless. So, some might look at a chapter like this, everyone has a negative spin. They could look at it and say, it would be obviously better to take all that gold and buy food for the poor. No, that's not the case here. Or we could say, God doesn't care how we approach him as long as we approach him. Oh, that, that's maybe a little more like something we could hear in our time. Or he doesn't care how we address him as long as we address him. It's okay. Come as you are, no big deal. He's not very meticulous. He's very meticulous. As we read, I want us to embrace the meticulousness of God, for in doing so, I think we will be rightly filled with reverence and awe. This is a unique um, time where we get to see God giving a lot of really specific instruction. It's, it's through a big chunk of the rest of Exodus. Another thing to consider as we read is that this kind of work would take the steady hand of a consecrated and devoted worshiper with particular gifting. You don't just, like if I told you to go make an acacia pole and overlay it with gold, you're like, I don't even know where you're going to occasionally pull. I don't know. Does Hobby Lobby have them? Um, and so this is going to take uh, 
the hand of a consecrated and devoted worshiper with particular gifting. Later on, we're going to meet some of the gifted craftsmen. Bezalel and Aholiab are, uh, are some pretty awesome guys. Twenty-five seventeen through 22 says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and the one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat. Shall you make the cherubim on its two ends? The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give to you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel." The mercy seat is the actual place where God will speak with Moses about all that he desires for his people. Some have said what we're beginning to see here is some, uh, are some Eden parallels. The tabernacle, like Eden, is now where God dwells, and it has an east-facing entrance that is guarded by cherubim, that we are seeing a step toward the restoration of paradise in this movement of God. Take it for what it's worth. Not everyone agrees, but it is very poetic and pretty. Look at 2523. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length and a cubit its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls uh, with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of, you guessed it, pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. First consider how everything is mobile. Everything has a handle. Why? To carry it. And for what? Yeah, Israel's mobile. Um, They're a sojourning people being led to the promised land. It's kind of a continual state of mobile worship. Um, Every time I read this, I think of mobile worship. I've written it in my little margin. I think it's funny. Um, We have a bunch of boxes with wheels. They have acacia wood poles covered in gold. Uh, Maybe we'll upgrade someday. The bread of the presence signifies that God is present with his people regularly, and we'll find out more later about its use. Look at 31 through 40. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. I mean, that's, that's meticulous. Could you hammer out a gold lampstand right now? Its base, its stems, its cups. A, a couple of y'all actually probably could. Its calyxes and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it, three cups made like almond blossoms. If you're starting to get bored, let's not forget these are meticulous details being shared by God for his people. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and a flower on the other branch. Try to picture it. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself, there should be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. 
You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils of, out of a talent of pure gold, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So evidently there's like a workshop going on that we don't know about where Moses is saying, oh, okay, so that's how you do it. I don't know who was running that. I don't know if it was angels. I don't know what, what it was, but something's being shown him on the mountain and how to make this. I think that's kind of cool. It's interesting that this section closes with Moses being shown some of the details uh, on the makeup of what God is communicating. We can only wonder what that looked like. Uh, the bread of the presence uh, is facing the lampstand. So that means that it's enjoying the perpetual light of divine blessing. There's a link there that we will look at more later. So I'll, I'll just conclude with, um, I, I want us to appreciate the meticulousness of God. He is detailed for good reason. What he is calling his people to, and consider how this translates, what he's calling his people to is not quick and sloppy construction. He's not concerned with efficiency, and his intention is not to save money. This is a monumental time where God's people are to be very rich toward God, their God who has delivered them from oppressive slavery and filled their hands with the riches of Egypt. For us, in a culture where we experience so much excess and materialism, it's difficult but worthwhile to see a fitting, honoring, and costly attention given to the dwelling place of God. We're going to have to really work to climb into this. Like, if, if we had, if you walked into a dinner where it was gold everything, gold plates, gold forks, gold knives, gold cups, and, and the best of the best of the best of the best of the best. Oh, the table is made of really fine, precious wood that's overlaid in gold. You'd be thinking, man, who is this? What is this for? This must be for someone important. And for us, we would probably almost immediately say, that is quite excessive. But we can't do that. Seeing the meticulousness of God, seeing how detailed he is, seeing how he does care about his tabernacle, where he will dwell with his people is important for us. So we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the bronze altar and the tabernacle and the court and all of the curtains and everything. And it's, it's because God wants his people to, to pay careful attention to the place where he will dwell with them. And there will be lots of implications for us along the journey. Wow. So pretty expensive endeavor. Um, we could probably do it, you know. I'd like to try to relive all this. But every part of me wants to, like, have stuff set up in the right proportions so you can see it. Um, and maybe, like, gold spray paint or something. Um, I'm, I just might do that next week. Um, uh, but th there's a lot of attention. There's a, there are riches that he has no, he does not need them but it is appropriate and fitting to honor our Lord in such a manner. And so what this is a picture of is worshipers who are abundantly open-handed and eager to honor God in every possible way they can in every facet of life. So let's pray and ask that God leads us in that. Uh, Lord, we're, we're climbing into a context here in Scripture that's, I think, just going to be difficult for a lot of us. I know it's difficult for me to, to not take all my preconceived notions and thoughts and apply them uh, rather, my hope is that we would submit to the word and see what you want us to see. 
Uh, at the very least, I pray that we would enjoy a meticulous God who is worthy of more honor than we could ever bestow upon you. The only reason we have anything is because you've given it to us. We are very blessed people, and you are a very great God. We love you, and we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.